from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the U.S. and NATO proxy war against Russia reaches a new stage of escalation, corporate media's information war leads the world to the precipice. We speak to journalist John Jeter for this month's extended look at news and culture. We really don't have enough information to move forward to decide, should we support Ukraine or should we push more for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine and some sort of resolution that does not include NATO. And on the one-year anniversary of Haitian asylum seekers being violently attacked and dispersed from Del Rio, Texas, Haitian and immigrant advocates speak out in front of the White House. We all saw that picture, that horrific picture of the men on horseback in uniform chasing and lashing at the black people, black men and women only carrying food and water to their children who are starving. All that and much, much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for September 23rd, 2022. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for fact-based geopolitical analysts all over the world, this week marked a new phase in the U.S. and NATO proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. Russia's President Vladimir Putin announced Wednesday that referenda will be held in the self-declared independent republics of Luhansk and Donetsk through Wednesday. And after that, the Russian Duma will accept the expected affirmative results and annex those territories into Russia. These are the largely Russian-speaking territories in eastern Ukraine that have been under attack by Kiev since 2014 and where 14,000 people have been killed since that time. So after this annexation happens, Russia will no longer just assist the militia in these regions, as it has since February in a so-called special military operation. It will then be defending Russian territory. It is in this context that Russia is mobilizing 300,000 reservists and other soldiers with combat experience. Writing in Consortium News on September 22nd, Former U.N. weapons inspector Scott Ritter summarized the history of post-World War II U.S. and NATO efforts to subjugate the Soviet Union and now Russia, including the expansion of the NATO military alliance up to Russia's border. Ritter was not alone in recognizing the escalation ladder being climbed by the world's two largest nuclear powers, with comments about the use of nuclear weapons in Putin's speech being said, not as threats as spun by Western media and officials, but rather said in response to threats made by those same officials in Europe, the U.S. and NATO. As he analyzed Putin's speech, Breakthrough News host Eugene Perrier referred to nuclear threats made by the new U.K. Prime Minister Liz Truss. And this issue of nuclear saber rattling is very serious. And when you have Putin saying this is not a bluff, we're ready to do it. You know, there's a concept in nuclear war called the escalation ladder. And we've talked about this before yep. on this show. And it's always said it's easier to go up than it is to go down because the way it is, is if I go up a level, then you don't want to look weak. So you go up a level. Then I don't want to look weak. Then I go up a level. Then the same thing over and over. The next thing you know, there's a nuclear conflict. So when we have these kind of major inflection crisis moments and are thinking about a nuclear war that will destroy humanity on earth, these are the moments where people have to say, well, wait a second, let's step back from the brink, which is what happened in the 1980s. Scott Ritter ends his essay this way, quote, 
the U.S. and its allies and the collective West now have to decide if the continued pursuit of a decades-long policy of isolating and destroying Russia is a matter of existential importance to them, and if the continued support of a Ukrainian government that is little more than the modern-day manifestation of the hateful ideology of Stepan Bandera is worth the lives of their respective citizenry and that of the rest of the world. The doomsday clock is literally one second to midnight, and we in the West have only ourselves to blame. End quote. Here on Capitol Hill, another existential battle is ongoing the fight to defeat. Senator Joe Manchin's proposed law, which would fast track fossil fuel extraction projects, including completion of the frack gas Mountain Valley pipeline. Scientists say that this pipeline through Virginia and West Virginia would lead to annual emissions equivalent to more than 89 million metric tons of carbon dioxide, equal to the emissions from 26 coal plants or 19 million passenger vehicles per year. Manchin's bill was part of a deal he made with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to pass the Inflation Reduction Act this summer, but climate activists are calling the agreement a dirty deal. The bill is reported to be tucked into a must-pass stopgap funding bill that needs to pass before the end of September to keep the government operating. Meanwhile, 11 protesters were arrested Thursday at the entrance to the Hart Senate office building after being told to leave. Also on Thursday, 400 scientists and health professionals sent a letter to House Speaker Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Schumer urging Congress to reject Manchin's bill. And at a press conference, experts rebutted all claims made by the bill's fossil fuel supporters. On the grounds, environmental justice contributor Michelle Roberts, who is national co-coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance, was one of those who spoke out. The permitting side deal undermines the countless decades of works that our affiliates, advocates, members, and community members across this country have put into building effective environmental review processes that leave no community behind. On Thursday, eight senators circulated a letter calling on a separate vote on the Manchin bill. And in another climate-related emergency, President Biden approved an emergency declaration which authorizes the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, to rush aid to Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona, which left the entire island without power. And Fiona struck the island almost exactly five years after Hurricane Maria, a Category 5 storm that devastated the island on September 20th, 2017. Climate justice groups pointed out the legacy of colonialism, which continues to rob Puerto Ricans of their sovereignty. Last year, a private company called Luma took over the island's public electric utility, PREPA, and since then, electricity bills have skyrocketed, while the grid obviously remains very fragile. The Sunrise Movement tweeted, quote, the catastrophic flooding and loss of power are the result of colonial policies that put profit over the people of PR. Puerto Rico deserves Green New Deal style policies that will build a public green energy grid and invest millions into social services, end quote.
In D.C., community leaders are pushing for new laws to assist young people exiting the foster care system. Chantel James has the latest. Commissioner Salim Adolfo, Chair of Advisory Neighborhood Commission 8C, and Tony Reynolds-Kreiner of TC Mentoring and Consulting, held a forum called Protecting the Rights of Foster Children and Youth Tuesday Night. It was a discussion of two important pieces of upcoming legislation, the Preserving Our Kids' Equity Through Trusts Amendment Act of 2022 requires the Child and Family Services Agency to keep the federal benefits of foster youth in special accounts that help them maintain their needed resources. The Fostering Stable Housing Opportunities Amendment Act of 2022 requires the Child and Family Services Agency to provide vouchers for youth aging out of foster care who are at risk of homelessness and who require assistance securing a primary residence for independent living. Tony Reynolds-Kreiner explains the importance here. There are many youth who are looking for permanent housing. They're looking for independent living. They're looking for the opportunities to create their own forever home in their own you know, sense of purpose. We also know that This legislation has the potential to end homelessness for eligible youth aging out of the foster care system. And so we really want to encourage D.C. Council to enact this bill. The legislation discussed at this event is part of what the City Council must consider by the end of this calendar year. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And finally, in culture and media, D.C. also has an active chapter that is supporting the imprisoned WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange. And Thomas O'Rourke has more. A live and online event at a Washington, D.C. public library, September 17th, co-sponsored by D.C. Action for Assange and Consortium News, screened Juan Passarelli's documentary, The War on Journalism, about the critical press freedom case of WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. Also joining were whistleblowers Daniel Ellsberg and John Kiriakou. Joe Loria, editor of Consortium News, moderated and spoke about what he termed the five myths about Assange. He debunked each in turn. Myth number one, Assange is not a journalist. False. Number two, Assange is a rapist. False. Number three, Assange fixed the 2016 election. False. Myth number four, Assange endangered U.S. informants. False. And number five, Assange is a hacker. And I, False. And I want to uh, just follow up to say that Joe Biden in that 2010 meet the press appearance, he did say, we can't charge him if we can't prove that he actually took part in the stealing of documents. If it was just given to him, it's a journalist. And the Obama administration did not prosecute him because they knew they'd have to prosecute the New York Times. And which also published the exact same documents that WikiLeaks published. So what's happening with Joe Biden now? He's the president. Why is there no pressure? Why is there nothing happening with the Justice Department dropping this case? I think the CIA, which is absolutely furious about Vault 7, as we saw in the film, which led to the discussion of killing or kidnapping Assange, has got to be putting pressure on Biden still not to drop it, and the Democratic Party establishment still smarting it because they believe myth number three, that he fixed the election and caused Hillary to lose. Those two pressures, I think, are being brought to bear on Biden right now. He'd hear a hell of a lot from the DNC and the CIA. 
On October 8th, there will be a rally for Assange's freedom at the Department of Justice, 950 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest Washington, D.C., from noon to 2 p.m. In conjunction with major actions in London and other cities worldwide, for On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. And on the one-year anniversary of Haitian asylum seekers being violently attacked and dispersed from Del Rio, Texas, Haitian and immigrant advocates held a series of actions here in the nation's capital, starting with a speak out Monday, September 19th, in front of the White House, condemning continuing racist U.S. immigration policies. Ola Osaze, an activist for rights of migrants, was the MC for the demonstration. I want to read the demands of this week of action. Demand one, bring back all Haitian asylum seekers who were denied their right to seek safety in the U.S. to pursue their asylum claims. Two, increase equity in processing at the border. For example, how it has happened with Ukrainian refugees. Demand number three, more language access for black, African, and indigenous migrants. Demand number four, better resources for humanitarian assistance for black migrants, for example, shelters. And these resources be culturally specific and accessible to black people. Demand number five, for the love of God and Title 42 and other deterrence policies that disproportionately harm black migrants since black people are always more surveilled and policed. Do we agree with these demands? Do we agree with these demands? Thank you all. Thank you. We'll have more from that protest after this break. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Good morning and welcome. We are gathered here today, a year after 13,000 Haitian and other black migrants were held at an encampment in Del Rio, a squalid camp that lacked basic necessities like adequate food, water, and medical care, a situation in which people were stopped, verbally harassed, and whipped by border patrols on horseback reminiscent of slave patrols and overseers. We are here because in spite of the brutality, the media attention, and the outcry and condemnation, thousands of migrants held at Del Rio encampment were still deported by Biden back to Haiti or expelled to Mexico. We are here because a year later, a whole investigation later, CBP released a 500-page report 
without including the voice or experience of a single migrant held at Del Rio, a report in which CBP declares there was no wrongdoing and that only four, only four patrol officers need to be called into account for their actions. We are here because still Biden tries to expand Title 42, a racist immigration policy that has been used as a justification to deport tens of thousands of black migrants. Today, we are going to continue to honor those 13,000 black migrants who were violated at Del Rio. We want them to know that nothing will stop us from seeking justice for them. Nothing will stop us in our quest to transform the U.S. immigration system so that black asylum seekers and refugees are welcome and treated with dignity. And nothing will dampen our resolve in ultimately fighting to end the very root causes of forced migration in the first place. My name is Margaret Cargioli and I'm directing attorney at Immigrant Defenders Law Center. I have seen with my own eyes the mistreatment by this administration of asylum seekers and migrants at the U.S. southern border. I was in Tijuana giving a Know Your Rights presentation to a group of Haitian asylum seekers who were bewildered and confused as to why hundreds and thousands of Ukrainians were being processed into the United States under for humanitarian parole reasons while they were living in deplorable conditions with their beautiful black children. I had to look at the faces of these black, beautiful babies, boys and girls who were suffering and had no other answer for the group of Haitians at this presentation, but that it is because of racism that we were seeing thousands of Haitians mistreated in Del Rio while thousands of Ukrainians were being processed at a U.S. port of entry. What we saw in Del Rio was outrageous. There were cameras to capture it. Imagine what happens to black migrants when no one is watching. That is why this administration must take the complaints and lawsuits seriously. There must be a serious investigation as to what happens when no one is watching. My name is Gerlina Joseph. Uh, I am the co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Alliance. Yeah, so a lot of people may not remember, even though the images were so horrific, a lot of Americans may not remember what happened at the Del Rio Bridge last year and why people are so outraged this morning. Uh, yes, uh, what happened last year um, in Del Rio, Texas, under the bridge, was a result of um, lack of access to protection, Title 42 that was created to completely end any type of access for folks to, to, to gain protection. So that is the number one. Number two, a lot of misinformation was given to people telling them if they went to the Rio, they might be able to get access to that protection. So we saw very quickly a large number of people, mostly Haitians, mostly black folks, who came to ask for asylum, who came to ask for protection. And we saw, the world finally saw what we have been telling them for many years, the fact that black bodies in motion, there is no safe 
safety for them. There's no safety for us. And we saw instead of welcoming people and find a way to kind of provide the basic necessities to, to those folks, mainly black people, the United States responded with heavy armed harmers, responded with what they called a wall of steel. In addition to that, we all saw that picture, that horrific picture of the men on horseback in uniform chasing and lashing at the black people, black men and women only carrying food and water to their children who were starving. Instead of welcoming them, we responded with violence and abuse. And not only that, although President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris and the Secretary Mayorkas, they were all upset about it. The next day, they started erasing the very reality of those people by deporting them and expelling them to Haiti. So and it was also so interesting that the, the some of the news organizations, they tried to dispute that they were being whipped. You know, we wh whether you call it a whip or a rain or whatever, we saw them being harassed and lashed out at with something. Yes, and that's the reality. It's me trying to slap you and you move your head away mm -hmm. and you say, well, you didn't get slapped because you moved your head away. Mm -hmm. The intention behind what we saw was chasing people, lashing at them and trying to trample them with their horses. Mm. That was the reality. Right. So you, they have this report and say, well, nobody really got trampled by the horse. Nobody really got whipped. But the reality is they didn't get trampled by the horse because they ran away from the horse. It wasn't because the intention of trampling them and beating them and abusing them and evoking their, their power, the same power they were able to invoke on enslaved people in America is the same sentiment because it is rooted in this white supremacist and anti-black racism. So right. what we saw in the picture is exactly what happened. The intention was to deter people, to scare them, to chase them away. So a number of the speakers referenced the difference in treatment of Haitians versus how Ukrainians have been given just a red carpet into the country. You know, I heard a lot of hurt by the speakers today. How has that impacted you seeing that discrepancy? People are very hurt and, and for good reasons. Actually, the Haitian Bridge Alliance was on the ground and was one of the very first organizations that were welcoming the Ukrainians. So when I say we went to the border for the Haitians, we stayed for everyone, that included the Ukrainians. We were the first organizations to welcome the, U the Ukrainians at the border. But we quickly understood how, because they were white, under the excuse and guise that they, there is a war, and we acknowledge that, and what we are saying is the same welcome, the same dignity, the same humanity that was provided and afforded to the Ukrainian should not be the exception, but be the rule. All people, no matter where they are come from, whether they're from Ukrainian or Haiti, if they are fleeing political turmoil, violence, unrest, they must be protected, they must be afforded the same type of protection. That's why we continue to say 
protection delayed is protection denied. And we once again call on the Biden administration to welcome people, black, brown, indigenous folks, the same way we were able to quickly mobilize to welcome the people from Ukraine. Okay, thank you so much. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum, and for this month's extended look at news and culture i'm excited to be joined by our media critic john jeter he is a former foreign bureau chief for the washington post and author of flat broke in the free market how globalization fleeced working people he joins us from limon costa rica welcome back to the show john thank you for having me esther well first john i have to say for the past three weeks, you know, we've here on the show, we've covered protests against the completion of the frack gas Mountain Valley pipeline, a town hall on racist policies in Mississippi that keep Jackson, Mississippi. You know, this is a majority black city of 150,000 people from having clean running water. And this week we covered the one year anniversary of Haitian asylum seekers being attacked in Del Rio, Texas, and how five years after Hurricane Maria, the privatized electric grid on the island totally failed again, leaving Puerto Rico without power. And so I know I didn't talk to you about this in advance, but in preparing to talk to you, I realized that I don't want to divorce what on the ground covers from the subject of media and culture. And I know for me, there's this straight line through all of these issues to racialized capitalism and imperialism, but I don't want to like on every show get all, you know, ideological like all the time. But then I realized that just the selection of what we choose to cover as opposed mm-hmm. to just focusing on, you know, the latest of Trump's legal woes or, you know, that the New York AG is now filed a lawsuit against Trump. And a lot of the liberal media in here in D.C., that's what they go for. But I just think that by choosing the stories that we cover emanating from Washington, D.C., you know, which we know is the seat of world imperialist domination, that just that selection tells the story. But I also want to give people information to fight back and show that people can fight back and that they are fighting back. And so I wanted to just start our conversation with just asking you, you know, if you grapple with some of these same issues as an independent journalist now. Oh, uh, every day. For me, 
as a, shall we say, mature journalist. The issue is the institutional failure of the United States to address its most vexing problems. One of the most pressing issues is racism and imperialism, right? And part of addressing that problem is to confront it, but we can't confront it because the media, one of those institutions that fails to give us the information we need to actually address our discontent, they tell these narratives that are so false as to be almost acts of sophistry, right? I, you know, I don't know what Donald Trump did or didn't do. I know that whether or not Donald Trump is president two years from now or whether he's not, the United States has some very serious problems that are only going to deepen with time if we don't start to address them now. Uh, but you won't, you won't hear that if you listen to the, the news media. I keep hearing about Ukraine and how we have to support Ukraine, but I know that there are almost no, virtually no African countries that support the United States in this proxy war against Russia and Ukraine. And so these things would really help us sort of start to dig out from this hole that we're in. And we just, we can't get it from our, certainly not from our mainstream media. And, and frankly, even our alternative media uh, falls quite a bit short of the glory, uh, present company excluded, of course. You've covered a few points that I definitely want to get back to. And I thought that we should start with a important panel that was held here earlier this week. And one of the things I got from it was a screening of this film, The War on Journalism, The Case of Julian Assange by Juan Passarelli. Watching it, I wanted to play this clip from Julian Assange, who is speaking in the movie. He's speaking to a group of students. They look like university students. So I thought I would play that as kind of uh, addressing this issue about the importance of journalism. And I'll, I'm going to play the clip now. Until we know the basic structures of our institutions, how they operate in practice, these titanic organizations, how they behave inside, not just through stories, but through vast amounts of internal documentation. Until we know that, how can we possibly make a diagnosis? How can we set the direction to go? Until we know where we are, we don't even have a map of where we are. So our, our first task is to build up the sort of the intellectual heritage that describes where we are. So, you know, he talks about we have to know where we are, you know, exactly. and exactly. I thought about that in relationship to the misinformation about the war in Ukraine. And it's been very clear to me that the continued failure of corporate media and many of our so-called uh, independent and even so-called progressive media, the failure of media to tell the story about the U.S.-backed coup in 2014 and the fact that there were eight years of war before this invasion in February, that failure uh, continues to haunt the, the coverage here. It leaves this gaping hole where the corporate media can still say and U.S. officials can still say that the invasion was unprovoked. <laughs> I don't know if you watch tennis there where you are, but, you know, we watched the U.S. Open and the opening and closing of the U.S. Tennis Open. The head of the 
I guess the USTA or whatever, he he started out by calling, you know, uh, raising funds for Ukraine and calling the this is a this is a sports event. Right. Right. <laughs> and right. he start he opened it by, you know, calling the war unprovoked and he ended it before he could even give out the trophies. He says we raised millions of dollars for this, you know, Ukraine suffering from this unprovoked attack. And by doing that, they not only erase the U.S. backed coup in 2014, the past eight years where 14,000 people have been killed in eastern Ukraine by Ukraine. Kiev has been attacking eastern Ukraine where right. where ethnic That's Russians right. live, right? 14,000 mm-hmm. people dead. And also it ignores the steady march of NATO right up to Russia's border ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Even when they said that they they said they would not do it. They promised that NATO would not expand one inch east. Right. And yes, so by right. calling it unprovoked here, you know, what is it now? Seven months after the invasion. OK, it continues to make Americans ignorant, and even though more and more people are catching on. It continues to cloud all the coverage so that even, you know, here on Pacifica Radio, you have shows that are carrying this on and de- demonizing Russia as if they just came in because Putin is evil and he's a devil and whatever. So anyway, what what are your thoughts? I agree completely. This is a war of narratives, right? There's a, it's a class war, as Fred Hampton said, profanely. But at its root, it's also a war of narratives. And the media perpetuates the hegemony of the ruling class, of the, of the super wealthy, by just not mentioning the other part of the narrative, the other viewpoint, right? And so, you know, Putin, I, you know, I don't know, I don't speak Russian, I've never met Vladimir Putin, um, but I do know that he is immensely popular in Russia, among Russians. I also know that there is a photograph of him on the internet that I just became aware of, where Putin, it, it looks to be Putin, no one has said it's not Putin, but it looks to be Vladimir Putin advising this assassinated liberation hero in Mozambique, Samora Michelle, where Putin is walking next to him as an advisor during Mozambique's, uh, I think this might have been, yeah, I think it was near the, near the end of their civil war. It would have had to have been. And so, and so I say all that to say that Putin is portrayed very differently in the rest of the world than he is in the West. And, and without understanding that, we really don't have enough information to move forward, to decide, you know, should we support Ukraine or should we push more for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine and some sort of resolution that does not include NATO, right? So we're just not fully informed. We're not fully invested in these issues the way much of the rest of the world is. Well, I guess a lot of that misinformation is extended even to this week, because if, for example, you look at how the two speeches were covered and unfortunately, a lot of people didn't really get a chance to hear Putin's actual speech in, you know, translated into English, where he gave the history of how the Russia has intervened to stop the attack on uh, the ethnic Russian population in eastern Ukraine and the attacks and the, the attacks on them over the last eight years and really gave his rationale for uh, for understanding how he is going to change what has been happening 
uh, that has been called a special military operation to something more decisive, that these people in the eastern Ukraine and I think uh, southern Ukraine are going to all have referendum to decide to join Russia and the Russian Federation. And so that will actually change the war completely because it won't be a war any longer of uh, militias from these districts, Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, mainly fighting Ukraine, but it will be, you know, Russians alongside them uh, fighting in a more official capacity as opposed to just the 150,000 reservists that were fighting alongside these municipalities in the past, uh, over the past seven months. And also he acknowledged that, you know, they're not just fighting Ukraine. They're they're not f- fighting Ukraine anymore because most of those fighters have been killed. And now he's, he says we're, what we're fighting is a NATO army, yeah, you know? Right. 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 And the last thing I saw highlighted by uh, corporate media is that they described him warning the U.S. that he could use nuclear weapons. But what if you listen to the speech, what he's saying is he's responding that's to the right. threats made by the West. Right. You know, he, exactly. he's responding to, exactly. to, to, yes, threats made by the West, including not just by the U.S., but by, you know, Liz Truss in the U.K. And so it's very interesting to have that coverage. And then uh, President Biden was at the U.N. this week and basically speaking as if Russia was the historical yeah. imperialist power. Fairy uh, tale. Just telling yeah. fairy tales. Yeah. And and not the U.S. having the history of imperialist domination and uh, invasions and coups and really the violation of the so- sovereignty of people all around the globe. It's a reminder listening to Biden, for instance, talk about Russia's imperialist ambitions, talk about Putin as a dictator. He's, he's democratically elected. Uh, Russia has not been an imperialist power, which means that you are extracting wealth from a country. The wealth is flowing one way. Russia has not done that in more than 100 years. Right. And you can say whatever you want about the Soviet Union. Right. They weren't an empire. Right. The money flowed from Russia to its republics, to its client states. That's just never happened. And the rest of the world realizes this. Right. Reminds me of the way that the United States, including Obama, would refer to Hugo Chavez as a dictator. The man was the most popular elected official in the entire world for up until his death, right? He was elected, I think, I think at that point to uh, almost 10, uh, his party was elected to t- almost 10 different elections, successive elections, by margins which would be the envy of any uh, U.S. politician, certainly running for president. So it's just this degradation of language, the degradation of narratives, and then and then finally the degradation of our understanding. Much of the alternative press, particularly that in Europe and Asia, they're talking about the very literally dark winter and very cold winter that Europe is likely to face in a few months, right? Because Russia has cut off the gas. This is serious, right? It's not just a matter of being cold and dark, but also deindustrializing. They don't have that kind of energy that they've had in the past. They don't have access to it. They're going, their economies are going to shrink. At the same time, the United States is just, we've just hiked interest rates to borrow money up to 3%, which is higher than I think it's been in 15 years. I mean, that's very high for an economy that produces nothing of value. So there are some very real issues that are at the heart of our discontent, and we're not even discussing them via our mainstream media. It reminds me of Arthur Miller, who I guess young people might know is one of Marilyn Monroe's husbands, but he was a great playwright. He used to say that a great newspaper is a nation having a conversation with itself. Well, we don't have that kind of media anymore, right? We're sort of a a thousand different tribes, each tribe 
communicating in its own language. And that's just a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. And when we have people continually censored, I don't have a new censorship story to share from the U.S. this month. Thank but, goodness. Yeah, but there's an artist, uh, Peter Seaton, I guess his acronym is CTO. He's based in Melbourne, Australia. He, he put up a mural of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers hugging. And then he was forced to take it down because uh, people were offended by it. And so the organization World Beyond War embraced his work and started selling NFTs uh, to raise money, showing this picture of, you know, a Russian and a Ukrainian soldier hugging. And just the fact that there was such hysteria that he had to paint over his mural just shows to me the tenor of the times, very, very similar to the banning of books here in the United States, the false cry against uh, critical race theory that doesn't want to show the real history of genocide and enslavement of people here in the country, the long history of racialized capitalism and and Jim Crow. And so it just kind of erasure or this attempt to rewrite history across the the Euro American world, you know, and that is something that is happening. And before we go to a a break, I want to cover another story that was broken by a local independent news outlet. The Riverfront Times reported on September 16th about how a Ferguson activist, Darren Seals, was surveilled by the FBI. And and Darren Seals was one of the, the young activists who was out protesting after the murder of Mike Brown by the Ferguson police in 2014. And in 2016, he was found shot and killed in his car. And the car had been set on fire and the murder was never solved. And there were a number of of activists involved in the early days of the movement for black lives who had been killed. And so the story goes on to talk about how they had received previously classified, heavily redacted FBI files showing that the agency opened a file on Darren Seals before his death and that they also worked with local police to who harassed Darren. And this is the same department that came under close scrutiny after the murder of Mike Brown. And then the the other thing that I want to remind our listeners about is that we covered the the arrest and the detaining mm-hmm. of a journalist, uh, Marzia Hashemi, who is an anchor for Press TV. And I remember quite clearly during covering that story, her associates saying that she was there to investigate right. these murders, right. that, that one of the reasons why she was. In addition to visiting her family as a journalist, she was looking into the fact that so many of these activists had been harmed or even killed who were active in igniting the movement for black lives after the murder of Mike Brown. So anyway, I wanted to bring that story to our attention. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I, uh, and I I've spoken to some activists uh, who knew Darren Seals, and he was not just an activist. He was someone who was really looked up to as a leader of that movement, not Black Lives Matter, which I think the activists who are on the ground took umbrage at Black Lives Matter uh, as being sort of out of touch and, and too closely tied to the nonprofit industrial complex. Uh, but but Seals was seen as a very real leader. And a testament to his leadership is that the movement on the ground in St. Louis has survived and even grown. And you know we don't hear the mainstream press uh, report on this very much, but I, you know, from what I know, and I don't know everything, obviously, but from what I know, it's one of the more successful and effective 
political movements, social and political movements, to come out of this sort of era of videotape police killings and attacks. And Cori Bush, I think, is uh, her victory is largely due to that coalition of, of activists, uh, the majority of whom are black. So, right. yeah, this FBI thing, uh, you know, is sort of a, you know, I've always, I, I'm always asking this question and I, I can never get an answer. Did COINTELPRO ever officially end? Like, I, I've never actually seen a record that they actually disbanded COINTELPRO, right? Like, it just, even if it, if it was sort of technically that the spirit of it could clearly lives on. This, you know, 900 pages on this one activist, I think, speaks to that. Right. And especially if you think about what was leaked to be this pursuit of black, so-called black identity extremists by the FBI. And then the recent raid on the African People's Socialist Party. And they are in St. Louis. Louis. You know, so we have to connect all these dots. This is on the ground. I'm Esther Averam, and we're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with our media critic, John Jeter, for this month's extended look at news and culture. And John, we have a few more things. We we don't have a lot of time left, but we have a few more things we want to try to cover this month. An independent investigation has found that the killing of journalist Shireen Abu Akleh by Israeli soldiers was deliberate uncovering evidence that an Israeli sniper repeatedly shot at her and at those who tried to rescue her. And this is a joint probe by Forensic Architecture and Al Haq. Yeah, it's such a horrible story. And, you know, uh, she was, uh, as I recall, a, an American citizen. And so why is there no outrage? Why is there no uproar? Why isn't Joe Biden talking about the murder of an American citizen by Israeli snipers why isn't he talking about that why isn't he rattling his saber at israel the way he does putin and russia uh iran and syria and all these other countries that the united states wants to fleece so it's staying in the news and we have to be one of the outlets keeping it in the news right okay so from where you are in the global south uh, give me your impressions about coverage of the death of queen elizabeth the second yeah, I really do think that that we're seeing a reconfiguration of the world, and that is uh, sparked by a, a raised consciousness by people around the world, although certainly people, particularly in the global south, have already had a, a much higher consciousness level than we have here in the United States, because, of course, they are continuing to endure the, uh, the savagery of British and French and American imperialism, Western imperialism. And so I just think, you know, the idea of mourning your oppressor is so <laughs> absurd. And, you know, you know, we say that and it's like, you, you have to understand Queen Elizabeth II, you know, she might be seen as a sort of doddering, kindly old woman, but she was complicit in the imprisonment and torture of 1.5 million Kenyans during their 
liberation struggle, right? She was complicit in that, you know, uh, her support for apartheid in South Africa, her theft of the, the largest diamond in the world. I think the first, the largest two diamonds in the world from South Africa and from India. And the idea that we're supposed to just sort of look the other way and say, oh, that's so sad. I, you know, I don't, I don't celebrate anyone's death. I, I have that much Christianity left in me, I suppose, or that much belief in God, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I don't celebrate anyone's death, but I don't mourn Queen Elizabeth's death. She lived a, a, a fine life at the expense of millions of people who suffered to sustain her lifestyle, to sustain that uh, of people in the West. And really, I mean, there's a British brother, academic, uh, Candy Andrews, I think, who says that the British monarchy is the premier symbol of white supremacy in the world. I think that's true. I think it is the premier symbol of white supremacy in that we should treat it as such. We should view it as such. And we need to move on. Um, We do have time to make a segue from that to uh, our culture segment this month. And often it gets cut out, but we're going to try our best to to get through it this this month. So what happened is the CNN host Don Lemon had on a Royals commentator on his show. This woman's Hillary Fordwich. And uh, anyway, so he talked about how there were calls, you know, for reparations from the royal family because of this legacy that we've been talking about. And so she basically said that, no, um, when you really look at the history of slavery, quote, you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa, which was the first nation in the world that abolished slavery. The first nation in the world to abolish it. It started with William Wilberforce. It was the British, she said. And this article in the Daily Mail, it does correct her. It says, in fact, Haiti was the first country to legally abolish slavery, which was banned there from the country's foundation in 1804 following a revolt against the French colonial government. But Don Lemon doesn't say any of this. So he gets her, he allows her to kind of go on. And so she's basically saying that the descendants of African kings should pay reparations to British descendants of people who were in the British Navy (laughs) and that, that if any reparations should be paid, it should be paid by the descendants of African kings. So anyway, Don Lemon had nothing to say uh, to this and except for this is a very interesting discussion and then he ended the segment and so this is this clip has gone viral of this woman basically blaming african people for the slave trade and don lemon had no no educated answer for her so it's really a disgrace i mean i really wish that you or gerald horn or somebody else was <laughs> was yes, the host yes. on cnn what what do you I, say about that it, and then i know i want to go to a connected story I just thought that was so, uh, it was so telling and not in a good way. Uh, this woman, I believe, was an Aust- Australian historian. Australian, meaning another white settler republic. And then you have Don Lemon, who's incapable of mounting a response, right? Because he doesn't know. He doesn't know. So you have this woman uh, making this ridiculous, preposterous proposal. Uh, it reminded me of the old uh, Damon Wayans joke about uh, fathers who brag about taking care of their kids. He said, uh, you supposed to. You ain't done nothing special. What you want, a cookie? The British ending slavery, it reminds me of that, right? You, you're supposed to. You didn't do anything special. You you created slavery, then you ended it. You, that's nothing special in that, you know? And then the idea that Africans should pay reparations. Well, they were colonized. You you took everything. The, the settlers 
from the UK and from France and everywhere else, they took everything. What would they pay with, right? They stole everything. It was a white settler colonialism is a criminal enterprise, the largest and oldest in the world. So, but this woman, you know, I, you know, she's got to sort of apologize for whiteness. And Don Lemon helped her, aided and abetted her, which of course is why he's there, right? This was just a very stark example of it. Wow. And so, so real quick, you know, maybe that's what they're teaching, you know, in Australia or in UK schools. But also there's this whole controversy about the the movie, The Woman King. I haven't seen it. I've heard both sides of everything I see from my social media friends is praising the film. And even Kimberly Crenshaw, the the author of, you know, intersectionality, that that theory, she talks about, well, you know, watch the film, then let's talk. Right. So but a controversy has developed because it covers the kingdom of Dahomey. And this is one of the kingdoms that participated in the slave trade in terms of, you know, rounding up other African people or people who they went to war with, taking them as captive as their prisoners of war. And then, yes, uh, selling them to the English. Right. And so there's controversy about, oh, you should boycott the film because this is basically making slave traders into superheroes. Right. Uh, it yeah. stars Viola Davis. Um, because I haven't really started going back into the theaters again. So yeah, I'm kind exactly. of wait, I have to wait for things to kind of go to the uh, on demand. And then finally, the House of the Dragon has started. This is the sequel in the Game of Thrones series. And it stars a black family. The The black man in the family is supposed to be the, the wealthiest man in Westeros. And he plays the role of Lord Corliss. Valerian. And when his role was first announced, he was the subject of all this racist uh, trolling online. And he told the the magazine Men's Health that fans of the show are, quote, happy with a dragon flying. They're happy with white hair and violet colored <laughs> eyes. But a rich black guy, that's beyond the pale. Right. So, right. so anyway, that's that's something happening. But I thought that you might want to talk about the owner of the Phoenix Suns uh, caught up in, apparently with a history of making racist comments, a sexist, misogynist comments, selling his team now. And um, for me, it just it just reinforces the whole idea that in this era, words and appearance matters more than power because yeah. you know you have this big brouhaha over someone saying the n-word you know what they might say to women how they may act but in the meantime it, it limits the the real discussion about capitalism and really who is holding the power in society so i thought you might want to end with that and then i guess we, you could bring in brett Favre also yeah, I, thank you for that. I, I want to talk about Brett Favre very briefly, but part of what's missing is a materialist critique. What are the material conditions that we are enduring here? And Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, who has a long record of racism and misogyny, he's going to make out like a bandit in the sale of this his team, much like Donald Sterling did for selling the Los Angeles Clippers. And so we just don't have a materialist critique of these conditions. You know, what we really should be asking ourselves is why do the players do all of the work, right? And they only, you know, bring in half of the money that the NBA brings in. Why don't the players own it? Or better yet, why doesn't the community own it? Why doesn't the, the city of Phoenix own the Phoenix Sun? And so we don't have these critiques because we're stuck, like you say, on these symbols and uh, language doesn't really amount to anything while people are suffering 
uh, with no real solutions being answered. But lastly, and this is just uh, to me so symbolic of the United States in this day and time, you've got the Brett Favre saga who stole millions, conspired with the governor and the state of Mississippi, the poorest state in the country. And they stole, basically, they drained the welfare fund. I think it was $86 million. They took almost all of it. Brett Favre was complicit in this scheme. And Brett Favre was a very wealthy man. I don't know how wealthy, but he certainly got more money than you and I, Esther. And yet Brett Favre, you know, I see the Warren has turned now, but he's been revered throughout since I remember him in the in the mid nineties, and he's always been revered as this kind of iconic white male figure, right? And yet here he is, he's just a thief. Well, given the fact that the same state has conspired basically in a in a in a very racist way to deprive Jackson of the infrastructure it needs, this is the capital city, a majority black city deprive them of the infrastructure they need to have a proper water system while at the same time, you know, doling out millions to, you know, more fortunate communities and also to millionaires like Brett Favre. This this just tells you the state of not just Mississippi, but the state of the United States, you know, while we send billions to Ukraine. But we're going to have to leave it there. John, we are well over time. Um, I want to thank our media critic, John Jeter, Thank you, John. Thank you, Esther. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all our shows is at onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. The music we played this hour included Wade in the Water by the late, great Ramsey Lewis. And our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.